Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I'm a little bit under weather today. My, my voice is not where it usually, what it usually is. And I have a wonderful guest host today, uh, retired Marine Colonel Sean McBride. Thank you, Sean, for being here. Thanks for the opportunity, Fig. And, and you know what? And I, I'm so, so happy to have this guest today. She is one of my leadership gurus and mentors, Dr. Carol Geffner. And Carol, I'm going to ask you to do an intro because... You know what? I don't want to short you on anything. You have a lot of titles, and I want to make sure I get all this, all this right. <laughs> I think my most important title is mom. So you're under the weather, <coughs> and I'm recovering from bronchitis. So between the two of us, we're going to just sound great, um, and I'll do, do my best to diminish the coughing. Anyhow, thank you, Fig. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, we've done this once before. And I, I can't imagine a better way to start my day than with you and with Sean. Um, and uh, yeah, so here we go. I'll try to also not do too many titles. Um, at present, I'm the president of CB Vision Consulting. This is a management, a national management consulting firm and executive coaching. We've been around for about nine years. And until recently, very recently, I was a professor of practice, as you both know, of governance and management at the University of Southern California. And, um, and then I've been, without boring the audience, I have been in prior to this in healthcare for about nine years. I've been, I've run businesses and I've also been consulting for a very long time. So I think that's a perfect segue so as not to age myself too much. Well, I, I really appreciate you being here. Um, there's so many people that look up to you um, in terms of your knowledge and wealth of knowledge you bring to the, the, the leadership world. And um, I guess the first question, I and, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you here is, you, is that you've just written a book. And I want you to, if you can give me the title of the book. And, and, and moreover, I would like for you to tell me what made you believe this book was needed and then why did you choose the structure you did for the book and the people you spoke to? Yeah, that's a great and then, question. And then I'm going to have my buddy over here. Sean's going to take it from here. I, I gave you a big okay. whopper, though, uh, to start with. So Okay. Well, it's a whopper for which I am prepared. So <laughs> um, the book title is Building a New Leadership Ladder, Transforming Male-Dominated Organizations to support women on the rise. I know that's a mouthful. And um, first of all, the reason I wrote the book is, um, is the following. I've been, I've had a long career. I have worked with, I've consulted to, I've coached and I've run businesses that are heavily male dominated. And that means either the particular business was or the industry was. And as you both know, I've also been teaching for a lot of years. So I've worked with a lot of women, hundreds and hundreds of women who are, you know, advancing their careers. They're trying to advance their careers. They're in either kind of mid-career-ish mid or senior management. And for many years, over a decade, I have been wondering about how is it that women find their voice? You know, why is it and how is it that some women are able to get through 
the leaky pipeline and into executive management and leadership, and others are not. I started my interest in women in leadership um, long, long ago when I did my doctorate. But then over the last decade, in working with so many women in law enforcement, military, the sciences, technology, et cetera, um, entertainment, believe it or not, um, I have kind of deepened my interest. So I started off by interviewing uh, just incredible women in many of those fields, right? Heavily male-dominated fields like law policing and law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. And you asked me about the structure of the book. Well, my original interest was how is it that women find a way to use their voice for good and make a difference in these settings. Um, the book is published by MIT. And in collaboration with them, we really decided that there hasn't been a book yet on what is the role of the organization. You know, up until very recently, a few years ago, the dominant thinking, and I would say to you, it still is the dominant thinking, is that we're gonna change the dynamics one person at a time. Well, I wanna say, contrarian as this is, that is not accurate. Um, if we're gonna do it one person at a time, we're gonna be long gone and still not see much progress. So the bigger question is, what, what does the organization need to do to create the context, to create the setting so that women and people of marginalized um, communities can succeed? And that's why the structure of the book is what it is. Sean, you get to take it away now. I, I know Sean's been preparing this for like, uh, four or five days now, so be be ready, Carol. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is my uh, my rookie performance here as a <laughs> podcast co-host, so <laughs> bear with me. All right, that was a great answer, Carol, and, and pretty cool that MIT published it. Yeah, that just right there alone is is pretty significant. Um, so we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and this is it. Just seems like an old conversation, and and you look at companies, and they've got vice presidents of DEI, they've got DEI organizations within their companies. It just seems like it's an it's 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 an old conversation. Yet we're still having it. Why why is that? And are we making any progress? So um, again, let me say to you, I, from a kind of challenging point of view, I actually think it's a brand new conversation. Now it might feel old, right? Like why are we still struggling with this DEI stuff? And what does that mean, anyways? And, and, you know, I consult to organizations now and I hear this. However, think back. It's only been a few years. You know, the conversation really be, uh, moved into the mainstream around the Me Too movement, George Floyd murder, et cetera. That time frame, well, that was three years ago. So we're actually in the early stages of figuring out why are we doing DEI? What does it mean? And how do we do this stuff? So, you know, to your point, Sean, there are organizations, particularly large ones that are, you know, corporate in nature, that have the resources. 
there are some of those that have built these big DEI offices. Most organizations have not. Most organizations either have a person assigned as like the chief DEI officer, or they have nobody, you know, if it's a small business or an entrepreneurial business, they don't have anybody and they're trying to figure this out. So the reason we're having the conversation is because we have a lot to learn. So, um, so for instance, think about an organization that declares that DEI is important, right? We've all seen this. And let's say they have someone heading up DEI and maybe even a couple of people on their staff. Well, here are some of the mistakes that happen. First of all, they don't define DEI. They just assume that everybody in the organization knows what DEI is. So how does it get interpreted? Usually it gets interpreted um, by um, through the lens of numbers. Oh, oh, that means that we got to get more numbers. We have to increase the numbers of women and women of color, men of color, ra you know, race, ethnicity. Oh, that's what that means. So we better count and we better keep track better because again, many other than the few large corporate sector institutions, most organizations don't track well. So that's how it gets defined, but that's not really what DEI is, right? That's only one portion of how, you know, getting more people, a broader community of people into the organization and in through senior management and executive management. DEI has a bigger um, definition. And the important thing is that the organization take the time to define it. I'm working with an organization right now as an example and you know they've done some they're really committed from the top of the organization however when you talk to people inside even in senior management they're saying either well what is it because it's not clear to us or they're saying we don't want it because it's going to disadvantage white men right and so from the get-go, it's important to say, you know, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to build an organization that allows broader perspectives? Are we trying to build an inclusive culture? And what does that mean? And by the way, the statistics, the data are convincing. If you look at the data, for instance, recent, recent, recent data on executive teams that have... Um, diversity as part of their executive team. In other words, they don't have just a woman or a person of color. They actually built executive teams that are diverse. So I know I'm taking it away from my, my focus on women for a minute, but it's a, it's a similar issue. They um, outperform organizations of their size um, substantially. So the 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 greater the represent let me make it simple the greater the representation of diversity on executive teams the higher the likelihood that that business is going to outperform mckinsey has done they're just one but they've done some really great work on on the uh, performance of businesses that are including women and diverse uh people of diverse backgrounds catalyst is another. So there's a lot of data now coming out saying, even if you don't like the term, you know, change the term, figure out what you're trying to do. And let's look at why are we doing it? 
And one reason is because there's a performance advantage. And then the other reason is, are we trying to have, um, are we trying to, you know, is this business um, have a greater purpose to have some form of social responsibility? You know, is our business part of the larger society? And are we trying to make a difference in our business? That was a long answer. Sorry. Wow, that was a heck of an answer. Christian, did you, did you, did <laughs> yeah, you have something to Yeah, I have a question. Um, but why, I guess for me, if organization says, I think going back to what you were saying, I know Sean was probably thinking the same thing is, hey, it's already working. Our organization is already high performing. And so why is this diversity important? It's not a problem. What, I mean, how do you respond to those? I, and I know that's a very common uh, yes. a, a very common question for you, but, but why is it important? Sure. So first of all, the way I'm going to respond on this show is not exactly the way I would respond to a client because I would be, you know, I would understand that client's business. I would understand the CEO. I would understand or the chief or whomever it is, and I'd be able to make it more specific. For today, I'm going to say this. First of all, when someone says to me, well, we're doing great already, so why do we need this? Um, I would very diplomatically ask, let's see the data around that. <laughs> so generally speaking, yeah, that's not the case. So, and when you start to ask, well, what are you tracking? What metrics are you using? You know, how are you measuring that you're doing so well? Obviously in a in a public sector organization, that's an easier one because they can pull out the numbers, right? Um, and and as I said, the research is unequivocal that you might be doing well, but you're going to outperform if you do some things differently, right? So there's one reason. But in other organizations, privately held companies, nonprofits, or nonprofits, well, nonprofits, uh, public sector, government, etc. You know, when you start digging down and saying, well, let me, let's talk about how well you're doing and how do you measure that? Oftentimes, almost always, the answers are not substantial, right? And usually that feeling, which I understand, I really understand this, when people say, hey, we're okay, why are we doing this anyways? I understand that feeling, but you know, let's look at where that's coming from. And that's usually coming from fear, right? So, um, you know, when, and I'll give you an example. So I was recently working with an organization and, and there, of course, there were people inside saying, you know, we're doing fine. Thank you very much. You know, see you later. And that's, you know, you gotta, you gotta honor where people are coming from. You gotta start where people are. And then when, our firm, you know, asked for some data, like, okay, can you show us how many women, for instance, are going from entry level up through all the levels into executive management? Can you show us how many men of color, I mean, et cetera, et cetera? Guess what? The numbers reflected exactly what we're here to talk about. There was a leaky pipeline. So there were um, a lot of people um, men and women coming into the pipeline and somewhere around the middle level management, they were falling off. And that is 
typical. So I think my short answer, even though I've just given you another long answer, is you got to look deeper, but also honor the feelings that people have because this stuff doesn't necessarily make sense. It's like a slogan on the wall, right? Let's do DEI. So I understand the fear or the anxiety around it. Does that make some sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess, I guess, uh, and I'm going to, Sean, I'm going to let you take over. I, it just, I always say, when I have these conversations, these things pop in my head. And, and I guess part of that is, and we've had these conversations before, is what does this diversity bring to the table? Right. And I guess that would, that would be my follow-up question. Um, when you say it increases profitability in this and having this diversity, is it because they're bringing different ideas? Is this bringing different uh, viewpoints? I mean, you're, in your view, what do you think? Yes. Y yes. So in my view, let's go beyond all the data that's been collected, right, um, or that we've just already talked about. Um, from my point of view, it's, well, it's simple and it's complicated. Um, I, I would ask you, and you don't have to answer it because you're on the, you guys are running the podcast. So, you know, you don't, you probably don't have time to, to delve into a Q&A with me, but I would ask you, what are the best teams you've been on, right? And I would ask anybody that question. So talk to me about the best teams you've been on. Well, usually there's someone at the head of that team formally, like a leader or formal leader or a facilitator or someone who is pretty skilled at leadership and knows how to bring the best out of people. So usually that's a factor. But when you dig and you look at, you know, well, tell me more. Usually, more often than not, there's something about the composition of the team. Oh my gosh, we were so creative. We listened to each other and the dynamics of the team. Sorry. Um, you know, people really loved being there. We had fun. So then when you keep, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm sorry. When you keep digging a little bit. And so that's my job, you know, I'm chief digger. Um, um, when you keep digging a little bit, you find out that what was going on is that people in that environment trusted one another. It was a higher level of trust. There were ideas flowing. People didn't feel afraid to speak. People were able to use their voices, et cetera, et cetera. So now let's bring diversity in. If you want to, let's say you want to be creative, you know, you want um, kind of the best solutions to problems. Or you're a company that is um, for for a company or an organization for whom innovation is important, or you just want to create a great place to work. What are some of those elements? Well, those elements are people need to feel safe. They need to they they want to um, think broadly, right? They want to question one another, and diversity allows this. So if, if, you have a, if you have a team or an organization where most people are thinking the same and, and um, you know, they, uh, they come from a, a similar perspective, that narrows your experience. So what would you rather have? An experience where you get to kind of meet people from different backgrounds and hear different lenses, you know? Um, and challenge one another. And this is all about diversity. So it get, kind of gets back to that point of 
if we don't do a good job at the outset of talking about what, like exactly what you're asking, why is this important? If we don't do a good job at the front end, then, you know, people are stuck with, oh, well, I guess it just means we got to bring someone else in the, in the room. Does that make any, I, I hope I'm making sense because I'm definitely talking a lot. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And, and we want you to talk a lot. People don't want to listen to Fig and I, definitely. So early in your book, you just, you discuss women being funneled into positions with limited upward mobility. And I know every situation is different, but did you generally find that this was intentional or was it some sort of unconscious bias that led them to that assignment? Yeah. So another great question. No, it's rarely intentional. I mean, I'm sure there are some organizations out there in the past that have that have come from that place, but most of the time it is unconscious bias. So, and, and it, and there's two parts to this. So imagine you're recruiting for certain positions and, and I'm going to talk about a, a case that just was in the newspaper last night in a moment, but imagine you're recruiting for whatever the position is. And, you know, let's say you've always had mostly men in that position whether it's science or technology or policing, I don't care what it is, healthcare. Um, but most of the time there've been men or all the time there have been men. You know, we are human beings. We have biases, um, no matter how self-aware we are, we have biases. So let's assume that you are listening for certain competencies, certain capabilities, certain the way someone shows up in the room, the way someone talks. If you're used to, let's say, um, if you're used to a, a pattern, a pattern that has always preceded this, 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 it has always been in this job. That didn't make any sense. That was very inarticulate. Um, that's what you're listening for. Your brain is wired to look for familiarity. So let's take it from another point of view. Our brains look for safety and familiarity. When something comes into the room or someone comes into the room who sounds differently, looks differently, whatever it is, our brains are unconsciously filtering them into other categories. That's what our brains do. We put things in categories. So the unconscious bias is very powerful, which is why, again, we need diversity in the room when we are screening, recruiting, and promoting people, because we want to be able to say, well, why, do, why don't you think that person is the best candidate? Or I thought that person was really articulate. Why did you think she was aggressive, you know, whatever it is, you want to be able to challenge those opinions. So let me, um, let me bring up something. I, th I thought that our scheduling of this podcast was perfectly timed with the New York Times article last night about the, the Goldman Sachs lawsuit. So Goldman Sachs, um, as of, you know, it, the, it, the, it broke last night. They just lost a case. Um, it was a class action suit that um, started over a decade ago, but then became class action in 2018. 
And they now have to pay $215 million, $215 million, which is not a lot to Goldman Sachs, but it's a hefty amount of money, to a group of women who brought the class action because it was proven in the courts that they were systematically um, prejudicial to women moving up in, in that industry. Now, once again, I imagine other than the random few that there were probably very few men in the room at Goldman Sachs saying, don't let women in the room. But what happens is the way policies are interpreted, the way practices go on day by day, who you hire, your performance review system, which is a nightmare in most organizations, um, it screens out people. And by the way, one of the things they have to do as a result of this is they have to bring in independent consultants like what we do. They have to bring in independent consultants and one of the, there's a number of things they have to do, but one of them is they have to completely do an audit of their performance review system, which I guess will be completely blown up and redesigned. So there you go. And the, and the good old boy network is still just alive and well in, in many organizations. So, that, you know, that's certainly going to impact who is uh, advanced and who's not. So let me let me pick up on that. Um, again, my my research is on male dominated organizations and positions. Right. And professions. So let's look at the good old boy network. And again, I understand that that doesn't sound good in the ears of the men, but the stories I heard from the women I interviewed, and these are women around the globe in all kinds of professions. The stories I heard were, some of them were harrowing. Um, some of them were more subtle um, about women who were in positions of great authority. And, and let me get, let me give you an example. I, uh, one of, I interviewed several presidents of major universities and one of the women talked about how, and I, I understand this is idiosyncratic, but it, it's just, a, it's, it's just a symbol how she, she was a new president and the board of directors, the board of trustees was holding a, um, like a welcoming party, you know, and their spouses were there and so on. And as weird as this is, one of the men on the board took her husband aside during the cocktail party and said and shared with him how he didn't think his wife, he didn't believe, think that his wife was um, right for this job. So here is a brand new president being welcomed and a board member takes her husband aside. Now, unless her husband had said something, she would never have known that, right? So it could have ended up being just a subtle dynamic in the boardroom, as, as it turned out, it wasn't so subtle. Um, I can give you so many stories, including stories that I have encountered, but let me, let me give you a chance to ask another question. Yeah, you know, and just in, in my experience, when, when somebody whispers something in your spouse's ear, they, the intention is for it to get back to you. So I'm sure that was a yes. threatening comment. That's, that's amazing. Yes. One thing you wrote about in the book that really surprised me was that companies will hire high performing female leaders to guide them through a crisis. And then after the crisis is over, they let them go. Why would that happen? I know. Isn't that odd? Yes. Well, it's, it, it's, um, Unfortunately, there's um, 
a pattern and there's a lot of research around it. Otherwise I couldn't have written it. I couldn't, couldn't have written about it. So, <clears throat> and there are examples in the book of big companies that we all know about. Um, even though this is going to sound stereotypical, again, there's research around this. So in a, at a high level, women are typically better. I'm afraid to say this because someone, someone who's listening is going to say, well, I have worked for a woman who's not like this. But women oftentimes are better in relationship building, collaboration, not you guys, of course, not Sean and Fig, of course. <laughs> You know, relationship building, empathy, compassion, et cetera, building partnerships, et cetera. Now, again, I'm going to say it again for the listeners. This is a stereotype. Um, however, it happens to play out a lot in um, if you look at patterns of behavior. So imagine an organization in crisis, and both of you know one. Uh, we this is familiar to all of us. Imagine I asked the audience, think about one maybe you've been with or you've read about that has gone through scandals um, or their performance is, uh, has been tanking or there have been problems at the board level, whatever it is. And they need someone to come in to kind of calm the troops <laughs> and get people back in focus and build the performance of the business. So oftentimes, again, they'll bring in a woman on the heels, oftentimes also in positions where there's never been a woman. So that's another dynamic that's heavy because you're bringing someone in at the top and she may be, oftentimes is, the first woman at the top of that organization. So she gets a lot of support from the board or the governing organization and does the hard work. So think about what has to happen if you're coming in to lead through a crisis. You have to be bold. You have to be courageous. You have to take risks. You can't do status quo. You have to break the status quo. That's your job if you're coming in to lead after a crisis. You have to be um, meeting the needs of many, many, many masters and so usually you get a lot of support for the first couple of years. And then behind the scenes, there's usually some folks who start getting um, uncomfortable with some of those behaviors, you know, speaking directly, aggressiveness, what might be perceived as aggressiveness, assertiveness, being direct, being bold, etc. And over time, the trust begins to erode behind the scenes, whether that's at the board level whether it's a police commission, whether it's, I mean, it doesn't matter. Pick your, pick your, um, your setting uh, in higher ed. It could be at the executive administration level. So it begins to erode and, um, and then the person is ousted. And I actually interviewed several people in the book who have been in exactly that position um, and have been fired in their jobs, from their jobs, after they have been there, it's usually, you know, two, two and a half, three, three and a half years, and then they're, um, they're ushered out. By the way, I'm going to give you another story. Someone else in the book um, uh, was 
I have to be careful of this, um, but she was asked to take over a major part of a university. She's a really, I know this person well, she's a really nice person and not someone who yells and screams and not someone who, you know, um, is, is hard to get along with, et cetera. And one day was ushered into the office of executive administration and without, and by the way, she was outperforming. She had turned um, this part of the institution around and was ushered into the executive administration office one day and said, thank you very much. As of right, as of right now, uh, we want to tell you how, what a great job you've done and um, we're letting you go. And no explanation and no words. And there were no scandals at all. Um, as proven over time, no scandals, no big problems, but a couple of people didn't like the fact that there was someone in that role um, who was making changes, a couple of powerful people. And this happens all the time. So those, those skills of boldness and decisiveness and uh, a change agent that gets them the job then becomes threatening after they've already worked through the crisis. So that was even better said than than the way I framed it. Yes, in summary, that's exactly what happens. So you're asked to be that person and women uh, face challenges related to this all the way through their careers. You know, in order to make it through the many levels of a large organization, you, know, you need to learn to speak up. You need to, again, use your voice. You need to be bold. You need to have courage, you need to have tenacity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those are assets if they're well managed, if they're implemented well. And to that point, and then you get to a certain level and <clears throat> all of a sudden people who don't want you there are saying, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm sorry, you know, are feeling like, um, yeah, we don't like this. <laughs> You're too decisive, um, you know. You uh, you know what you want. You know you're clear about your direction, and and uh, we don't like working. We don't want to be around that. So yes, exactly. The asset becomes the liability. That's terrible. So in in the book, Carol, you you and I, and I think this is a quote. One possible way to fix what is clearly a broken approach to building leadership pipelines made to be abandoned high performance pipelines. What what might be an alternative to that, to a high performance? Or can you define what a high performance pipeline is and maybe talk sure. about some alternatives? Sure. So, you know, starting back in the 90s, I was, um, well, at that time I was in a global professional services business. But throughout my career, I have not only been called in to coach people who were in these high performance uh, programs in their companies, but I've also seen uh, through clients, you know, the high performance uh, programs that they have developed over the years. And what that really means, and it, you know, varies by company, but fundamentally what it really means is they identify HR through the, through the managers in the business or the organization. They identify people who, who they believe have a potential to be um, very successful in that organization longer term, right? So they're grooming people 
Um, and I'm sure some of the listeners are nodding saying, oh yeah, I've been in those programs. Um, so, so one of the things that happens is in defining what does it mean to be a high performer? So let's start there because if, you know, if, if, if you're, if you develop a set of criteria or competencies, you know, this is what it means to be a high performer. But if that list resembles mostly what you've had in the past as high performers, then that's what you're going to get in the high performing program. So you're already labeled as a high performer. You're given more opportunities. Um, you are put in special training programs. In, and again, I've been brought in as a coach in, in to, um, to coach people who have been labeled high performers. So you're already ahead of the game. And I, I would say to you, go back to the Goldman Sachs case as an example, because what happens is women and people of color in the past and still in the present are not identified as much as men in most organizations. That's just the way it is, but it's changing slowly. So the alternatives are to create uh, um, and to have independent experts help you create, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, criteria. Um, if you're going to use, you know, what what is the criteria for moving into a senior vice president's role? What is the criteria for, you know, moving into executive leadership, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it is for you, um, to be very clear about the competencies and the qualifications you are looking for and not to do it from an insular point of view. So the independent experts, um, and I don't say this to be, um, uh, you know, I, I say this objectively, you know, I'm, uh, no matter who the independent expert is, to bring in people who know this work and to have them work with you as collaborators in building that so that you're ensuring that you're defining jobs and roles and levels in a way that is um, accessible, easily accessible to women and, and women of color and men of color so that you don't have a special program where you put a label on someone's head, oh, you get the fast track and the rest of you don't. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Um, in higher education, academia, the people who are generally in large, in large institutions, this is mostly the case, the faculty members who are really at the top of the food chain are those who are researchers, who are scholarly, and who bring in grants, lots of grant money. So let's now take any department in a university, doesn't matter. And I coach, by the way, I coach people in academia right now so, and, I, and I've been in academia, uh, and I've been friends in academia, but um, so you bring in other kinds of faculty members <clears throat> intentionally who are not scholars in the field, but they've been in business, let's say, or they've been practitioners, right? So you're bringing in people who have been there, run organizations, they have applied knowledge, but now when it's time, so this is an example, so now when it's time to look at who is going to be a, a chair of a department? 
who is going to be a dean, who's going to be an assistant dean, a vice dean. You know, if you're only picking from the pool of people who are tenured faculty, um, who are bringing in grant money and who are scholarly, you have already, without, without saying it, you've already left out a whole portion of people who you've brought into the organization because of their assets, but you're now not putting them in the funnel to move up the organization. So in higher ed, that would be kind of an example of what happens also in business. And I can give you plenty of stories. Yeah. I bet you, I bet you can. <laughs> that was a great answer. Thanks, Carol. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you mentioned that some women were told that they weren't good candidates for the C-suite because they didn't have an executive presence. And that kind of reflects back on the previous question where we talked about hiring those high performing women and then uh, letting them go because you get threatened by maybe their presence. Can you talk about what, what that executive presence is and, uh, yes. and, and how you develop it? Yes. Yeah, so this is really important because men and women, I mean, we all need, if we're going to move into any senior or executive role in any business, whether it's, you know, I'm not talking about a two person business because you have control over everything, but you know, if you're, <clears throat> I'm really sorry, this is bronchitis in action. Um, so if you're in any organization of any size, um, we all need to learn how to show up. And by the way, this is also a reason why coaches like myself get brought in um, all the time. People who are very, very successful in their functional area, but they don't have the presence, um, they're lacking skills to get them into other, um, it, it, you know, to it, they're lacking other skills um, in terms of getting them in, it, into uh, other levels in the organization. So executive presence generally means the following, that when you show up, you are able to self-manage your actions and your reactions and your emotions so that you um, are able to be calm when needed. You are able to have composure when needed. You are aware of your behavior. So you know how you're in impacting other people when you're walking in the room, when you're in the room. So you have a sense of how, how am I showing up and what does my face look like? How's my body? What's, what are my nonverbal cues? So you have a, a very good level of self-awareness and you have confidence when speaking, when showing up and using your voice. So those are just a few and you're able to speak with intention. Let me give you some examples. Um, when I was in the C-suite of a very large organization years ago, and the CEO had brought me in and one day we were having a meeting and I, and I had a very powerful position. And he said to me, and I think I may have shared this with both of you at one point, but it's a story that always stuck with me. And I'm grateful that I had this happen early in my career. He said, Carol, when you walk out of my office, you don't realize it, but everybody's looking at your face. So you leave my office and you walk down the hall and you think, oh, we just had a good meeting. Maybe we had a good discussion. And he said, what people are doing is they're reading and interpreting your face. So if you walk out of my office and you look tense, for instance, there are people who are going to say, oh, my God, what's wrong with the business? Or they're going to say, oh, my God, the CEO just chewed out Carol. 
um, et cetera. I could keep going. That was the best lesson that I learned again early in my career. So what he was saying to me is your impact, you have a big bullhorn and you have a big impact. So when you walk out of my office, you have an obligation to have presence because I used to, I used to be quite, I'm still very animated, but I used to not be as um, aware of how much I needed to control my presence. So the way you develop this is through, oh, all kinds of training. I mean, you know, people, as you have, you both have, you go through all kinds of training throughout your career. You know, nowadays you can, you can actually find classes in emotional intelligence, part of which is learning to um, self-regulate your behavior, leadership, um, you know, how to have difficult conversations, et cetera. So you, you avail yourself of training. Um, you ask for feedback from your various managers. Some will be good feedback, some you know, will not be well thought out, but you ask for feedback because over time, you're gonna get some feedback about how you're showing up. Um, you, when it's time for a performance review, even though many of them are not done well, you, know, you see if there's any feedback on that relative to the way you show up in the office or in meetings. Um, you ask people, you ask people you trust with whom you work, you know, how did that meeting just go? As a matter of fact, early, my very first consulting job way back when, we used to, you know, four or five of us would show up at a client site for trying to get some business at a client. And the first thing we did when we left that meeting is we'd stand outside of the building and would say, how did we do? And we would say, well, you know, how articulate was I? Um, was I clear? How did how did we show up as a team? And that was our drill every single time. And we could say to one another, you know, you didn't look so happy in that meeting or whatever it was. Let me just give you um, a story. I coached uh, CEO of a very large insurance company going back in time. He was a great guy and people loved working with him. And he had a wonderful sense of humor, big guy. And, you know, he had never had a coach before. So we had several meetings and we were getting along really well. And I turned to him, I'm gonna change his name. It doesn't matter at this point, but I, I, I'm gonna change his name. And I said, Richard, has anybody ever told you the face you make when you're thinking? And he's like, what? And I said, has, have you ever gotten feedback about what you look like when you're thinking about something? He didn't know what I was talking about. So here he was, the CEO, and no one had ever said to him that he looked really mean when, when he was thinking. He would scrunch his face up. So we worked on, you know, we worked on that. We worked on awareness. I had him put a mirror on his desk. I mean, we worked, we worked on that. That became one thing because guess what? You walk into a room with people who don't know you and you start looking mean. Folks aren't going to talk to you. Um, and I guess they hadn't because... He had never heard the feedback. So executive presence is pretty darn important. And um, and the last thing I want to say about this, and I'm sorry I'm going on and on about this, but women who are coming into their careers or who are mid-level, oftentimes either apologize for something they're saying. You know, they'll start a sentence with, oh, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but, right? They'll apologize way too much. 
they will use clauses like, well, I don't know if you're going to agree with me about this. And I know it's kind of a novel idea, but so all those caveats, right? That's indirect language. Um, some women talk very softly. And I'm, and I'm just giving some common examples. None of these work to your favor as you move into senior levels of uh, management, right? So it's real important that you begin to put yourself in settings where you can ask people and, and get honest feedback. Now, I, I learned about facial expressions and that sort of thing the hard way several years ago. So I've worked on that. So is executive presence executive presence or is there male executive presence and female executive presence? Yeah, what a cool question. So it's not like there is a male it, 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 and the prescription isn't different, right? So it's not like you say to men, you do this and women, you do that. Here's the difference. Women are perceived differently than men. So if I show up, um, if I show up in an executive meeting and I look pretty, um, let's say stern, let me just pick that as an example. I look pretty stern, whatever that means. And I'm sitting next to people who also look, you know, thoughtful, uh, pensive, whatever. I might be perceived by someone in that room as, oh, is she an angry woman? I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, you know, or, wow, she's not in a good mood. Whereas the same maybe behavior in the room is not even looked at for the men in the room. So it's not about necessarily, well, I mean, there are some, there are some things you need to do differently as a woman, but generally speaking, it's the perception of you as a woman um, is you have less, you have less grace given to you, generally speaking. Um, if you're the first or the, or maybe one of two women and you're new, you know, you're in a senior level or executive level management um, position and you, you are generally, generally given less grace. Um, so you will be judged more harshly in most cases, and you may not, in most cases, you might not even be aware of it. You find it out the hard way. And I have experienced that as well as, um, so, so one more example, I coached someone who at ABC television years ago, and she reported to the head of ABC television. She was really good at her job and everybody knew that. In those days, I want to be very clear, in those days, the person who was running ABC TV was known as, uh, um, uh, he had a very loud personality and he would scream at people, he would yell at people, he would, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she was quieter, but she was very particular and very... She didn't have a great emotional intelligence. So she wasn't really aware of how her staff, uh, how frightened some of them were of her. She had a lot of power, but she also um, spoke very direct, directly and she didn't listen well, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they got her a coach. <laughs> that was me. Um, 
you know, to help shape her, which was a really good thing, really good thing. But he was allowed to continue in his role at the time, long ago, you know, knowing that he would yell at people and he would, you know, light up pretty easily. Um, and that's, those are the kinds of things that are different. I hope that makes sense. No, it, it does. And I think the one of the key takeaways is to ask the question. If you're male or female leader, to ask people yes. about your executive president to give you that feedback and, 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 and see what the perceptions are. That's good. We're getting kind of short on time here. So I'm going to ask a question that's got a little more a, a little more personal thing for me. So, so my son, he's in an extremely male-dominated sector. He's a Marine Corps infantryman. And there are females in the Marine infantry now, and that's just been over the last few years. So there's still very few. So what advice would I, should I give him as a junior leader to ensure that the females that he works with and the females that, we, that work for him uh, are given a fair opportunity to advance? So I love that question because it's very personal, right? And um, it matters a lot. Now, the fact that he's got you and your fabulous wife as parents probably puts him ahead of the game because he's already coming from a family that has a great deal of skill and self-awareness. So how do you like that? But, but that being said, or and, one of the things um, I would advise him to do is to take advantage of learning opportunities, whether that's training classes, um, you know, master's degree at some point and feedback, take advantage of learning opportunities to build his self-awareness because over time he needs to learn how is he, how is he presenting himself? How does he act with women coming up through the system and to be able to see how he impacts other people? That's critical. And by the way, I would say that to men or, and women. That's critical. That's essential. So I would urge him to, to build his skills there. I would <coughs> sorry, I would urge him to learn, and he can learn from you and your wife, because I know both of you, to learn how to ask for, for feedback in the long run, right? So to learn to find some people who will tell him the truth about how he could do something better. Maybe he's in a meeting and, you know, maybe there's someone he works with who could say, you know, as a ment from a mentor perspective, you know, let's talk about how you did there. That's the way we learn things over time, right? So to have trusted people and to look for trusted people in his work environment who can give him that feedback. And some of them over time should be women. Right. So to be able and 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 people as he moves up through the Marine Corps, you know, he's going to have direct reports. So to be able to say to a direct report, look, I want to be the best leader I can be. So I'm going to ask you at times I want honest feedback about how I'm doing, you know, to build those kinds of relationships that are real and not based on just words, he will get feedback over time from some women who will say, you know, that really felt condescending what you just said or whatever it is, okay? So that's another one. Um, of course, he needs to read my book. 
and he needs to read other books over time. Take the, you know, take the long view, but you're, you're so wise to understand that he's going to get a lot of feedback and a lot of peer support for male oriented behaviors, even if he's not aware of it. So he's going to have to be intentional about reaching out for um, skills and reaching out for feedback that that would might be a little different. And I would say also from people of, who are from different backgrounds, you know, and ethnicities to be able to be intentional over time to say, hey, how am I doing, right, as a leader? And, you know, let me know when I'm screwing up. Well, he gets all kinds of feedback from me and, yes. and from Michelle. So, but I will get him a copy of your book. That was great advice. <laughs> so, thank you, Carol. And I'm gonna. I, I've gone over my allotted time that Fig gave me, so I'm gonna turn it back over to Fig for uh, some closing uh, comments or questions. Yeah. Well, it's been fun. It's been a gas, Sean. I, thank I, you. I don't know necessarily if I gave you. We could be here for two hours. I wouldn't be an issue for me, Sean. Yeah, I, I I learned so much from both of you. Um, Sean, you did a great job. Uh, yeah, I, I, I draft. I drafted. I should, probably shouldn't use that verbiage with you, but uh, you're the military guy. You are. I drafted you to do this. So thank you so much. <laughs> I, I look no, up. I'm a volunteer. Me. Always been a volunteer. <laughs> um, I, I I wanted you to define two two. Uh, if you can quickly define a couple things just for the audience, because a lot of our audience is all different ages, so they may not be, um, you know, understand some of the some of the the, the terms we use. Uh, if you could just quickly define two terms, really. What's, what what does glass ceiling mean? And what is a good old boys network? I, I know for some people, that's like a term that I guess that some generations back used. I remember, I'm not so sure people use it now so much. Uh, can you explain what the definition of those terms sure. are? Just for our audience so they can put everything sure. else in context sure. today. Well, I hate, I hate to dispel a myth, but good old boys network, that verbiage, is absolutely still used. As a matter of fact, I have a colleague who was um, in a very tough situation um, in uh, law enforcement. And uh, yeah, she. we have talked recently a lot about what she encountered in terms of the good old boys network. So for those of you that <clears throat> who might be younger and you haven't experienced this yet, um, that, it's a, it's a phrase, it's a saying that means that men have, you know, can bond with one another behind the scenes and have access to one another. You know, this is when you hear, oh, the guys went out golfing and talked about issues, or the guys went to the bar and they didn't invite me. You know, this is when they're kind of uh, using their relationships to talk about you behind your back or to, to talk about a business decision and leave you out. So that's what it implies. And sorry to say it's alive and well. Um, it's, it's a shame and um, it just is. So that I hope that that is clear enough. Um, the, the problem is it's usually very, it can be, it can be very subtle. I opened my book with a, a story of when I was on a plane years ago and I was the only one sitting in the economy and all my peers were in first class. That's a longer story I won't get into now. And when I got off the plane, none of my male colleagues, we were all at the C-suite, none of them, well, first of all, none of them came back in a six hour flight to say hello to me, even though we got along real well. 
and none of them waited for me at the when we got off the plane. So that's the good old boys network. And um, it's very subtle. It can be very subtle like that. Glass ceiling is a phrase that is based upon research. And it means that women get to a certain point in, um, let's say, an organizational hierarchy. You get to a certain point and then you can't break through that level. So there's still what we, we it's now called a leaky pipeline, you know. Um, so it means that you, you know, you might make it to, let's say, middle level management, but that it's really hard to get beyond that because the, the unwritten norms, the performance reviews, the biases, et cetera, et cetera, um, still support and reinforce males moving into those senior and executive level roles. So glass ceiling is like you just can't get any higher. It, it, it's like you beat your head against the wall and you just can't figure out how do you get into senior and executive level management. So that's a kind of a, a simple way to describe it. Thank you so much. I, I, it's good. I, I think it's good for all of us to be reminded of those things. Sometimes we always hear it, but it's nice to hear you describe it in such detail. Um, any final thoughts you have, uh, Sean, before I wrap it up uh, with our wonderful guest here today? No, I, I just want to thank you for your time, Carl. I know how difficult it is to, to wedge something into your schedule the, the way you're always running. But uh, I think uh, your, your book is great and you're, you're making a difference. And, and this is just going to add to that. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for those kind comments and and thank you to Fig for inviting me on or Martine for inviting me on um, to talk about the book and the research. Um, it means a lot to me and it's all about making a difference. And I will start my day anytime talking to the two of you on a podcast or over the phone. So thank you for starting my day in this way. Just so, so I'm going to ask you this one last question. Then you're going to tell us how to get a hold of your book and how to contact you. Um, what is your favorite Mother's Day? What is my favorite Mother's Day? Yeah, that if you could think of one Mother's Day that you really enjoyed the most. Oh, that's easy. That's easy. Um, so when I when I had when I was a new mom, and Aaron was I don't know he was in a, he was probably six months old or something like that. Um, my then husband and myself and our two mothers. It was my first Mother's Day and we went to the Hyatt for Mother's Day and we celebrated them, but it was my first. I can still tell you what I was wearing, where we were, and that was just a moment. Uh, that's a lifetime memory. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's a beautiful memory. And I've got to ask you now, if they want to buy this book, where can they buy the book? If you can give the sure. website... Um, the name of the book again really quickly and how to contact you if there's an email or a phone number or anything you'd like to provide. Sure. Um, and by the way, my book is, is, um, is dedicated to my son. So that's the opening passage. Um, the book is called Building a New Leadership Ladder. And I, I, I will refrain from the, the long subtitle. And you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble, um, any major outlet. Um, so just go to Amazon. I mean, well, and Barnes and Noble. I want to give them equal equal uh, play. And to reach me, and thank you for asking that. Um, my email is cgeffner, g e f f n e r, cgeffner 
at, okay, it's long, get your pen out, CB, like Barbara, Z, like vision, CBV consultants, that's plural, cbvconsultants.com. Um, you can also Google me and um, go to our CB Vision website, CB Vision Consultants website. And I will have, I have a new website coming out. It's just, we're in the final stages. So pretty soon you can Google my name and maybe in a couple months and there'll be a new website also. So I hope that helps. It is wonderful. And thank you, Sean, so much again. Carol, thank you both for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, every time I do these podcasts with folks, I learn so much and Today was amazing, an amazing day. I was looking forward to this. And and like again, Sean, I, I drafted Sean at the last minute. I also want to thank the people that submitted questions. Um, Keith, Keith Lo enjoyed your book. I'm sure you know him. Some yes. of our audience members don't know him, but he submitted quite a few. Chris, yes. uh, a few other folks, and I want to thank them for submitting questions. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, anyway, well, have a great, great day, both of you. Till next time, everybody, everyone, keep learning. And we'll have another great guest on. Take care, everybody. All right. See you, girl. Bye, Faith. Thanks. Bye.